Greetings, listeners. It is I, D.B. Spitzer, and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Weird Crimes by Seabury Quinn. Number one, Bluebeard. Compiled from transcripts of the judicial records of the ancient Duchy of Brittany. Not long ago, the world was startled by the revelations of the trial of Henri Lanjou, accused of murdering ten women and an 18-year-old boy. Bluebeard, the newspapers dubbed him, comparing him to the most grisly character in all the fairy tales. How few of those who echoed the newswriter's epithet realized that Lanjou, who later expiated his crimes upon the guillotine at Versailles, and even the Bluebeard, whose story still frightens fretful children to stillness, were but amateurs in crime compared to the man who first bore the name. The man whose trial and conviction rocked medieval France to its foundations, and whose criminal exploits surpassed the wildest flights of imaginative fiction. Never in the stories of Poe, of Gautier, of de Maupassant, not even Bram Stoker's Count Dracula has a character more depraved, more terrible, more fascinating been portrayed than Gilles de Laval, sire de Retz, Marshal of France, Chamberlain to the French King and cousin to the mighty Duke of Brittany. The most monstrously depraved imagination, says a French criminologist, never could have conceived what this trial reveals. This memorable trial presents horrors unsurpassed in the entire volume of the world's history. During the year 1440, terrible rumors spread through Brittany, especially through the ancient Pédorette, which extends along the Loire from Nantes to Pambouf. In hundreds of peasant cottages, mothers wept for children they would see no more, and at the village inns where the laborers repaired from their fields to drink an evening cup of wine, whispered curses, mingled with sighs and exclamations of grief, were heard. And always, when the peasants muttered their sullen complaints to each other, the name of the sire de Retz was whispered. In that day, the great feudal lords owned the common people almost as absolutely as they owned the land itself, and the sire de Retz's chateau was strong. His men-at-arms were many. What could a handful of wooden-shod peasants armed only with scythes and flails avail against the king's favorite? But one last hope remained to the peasantry— Though the chivalry of France was a mighty institution, the Church of Rome was mightier. No noble, be his sword ever so long or his arrogance so great, dared lay a hand upon the humblest village priest. And to their spiritual advisers, the peasants betook themselves when their pleas to the civil authorities fell on deaf ears. Word was borne to Jean Chateau Giron, Bishop of Nantes, that oppression lay heavy upon his people in Brittany, and like the energetic prince of the church he was, the bishop dispatched his agents to investigate the reports. Gilles de Laval, the investigators found, had suddenly quit a most promising career at court to immure himself in his country seat at Machcoul, a gloomy chateau composed of huge towers and surrounded by deep moats, 
Also, since his residence in the country, he had deeded vast tracts of land to John V. Duke of Brittany, in order, it was whispered, to prevent that nobleman's too close scrutiny of his actions. While the marshal kept closely to his house most of the time, he was wont to make occasional trips to nearby towns, always accompanied by a princely retinue. He spent money with a lavish hand, enriching innkeepers and tradesmen beyond their wildest dreams, and distributing vast sums of gold to the poor. It might have been supposed that the townspeople would have welcomed his coming as a visitation from the good St. Nicholas himself. Yet the bishop's agents found, whenever the marshal left a town, the cries of the poor which had been restrained while the clink of his men-at-arms sounded in the streets broke forth. Tears flowed, curses were uttered, a long-continued wail went up to heaven. Mothers had lost their children, babes had been snatched from the cradle, infants had been spirited almost from their mother's breasts, and it was known by sad experience that the vanished little ones would never be seen again. De Retz's castle at Mashkul was always in condition to resist siege. The drawbridge was raised, the portcullis down, the gates closed, the retainers constantly under arms. No one except the marshal's own servants, the investigators heard, had even been known to go through the chateau's mysterious gates and come forth alive. In the surrounding country, strange tales of horror and deviltry circulated in hushed whispers, yet it was observed that the chapel of the castle was gorgeously decked with silk and cloth of gold, and the sacred vessels were encrusted with gems. The excessive devotion of the marshal was also noted. He was said to be passionately fond of ecclesiastical music, and to hear mass three times daily. But when dusk settled over the forest, and one by one the castle windows became illuminated, peasants would point to one casement, high up in an isolated tower from which a clear light streamed through the gloom. They told of a fierce red glare which came from that window at times, and of agonized cries, children's cries, ringing from it. Cries which had no answer but the howl of the wolf as he rose to quest and kill his prey by night. Once or twice a week, the drawbridge was lowered, and the servants of de Retz stood at the gateway, distributing clothes, money, and food to beggars who crowded round. It often happened that children were among those beggars. The servants would offer them rare dainties if they would go to the kitchen for them. Those little tots who accepted the offers were never seen again. Charges had been laid before the Duke of Brittany, accusing the marshal as a wholesale murderer of children. The duke had treated the accusations and the accusers alike with scorn. When this report was laid before the bishop, he summoned Pierre de l'Hospital, Grand Seneschal of Brittany, for a conference. Together they demanded that the duke order the arrest of the marshal on a charge of murder, threatening action by the church if he refused. Reluctantly, the duke had Pierre de l'Hospital proceed with the prosecution. Action followed immediately. A sergeant arms was given a warrant authorizing him to take the very mighty, very powerful sire de Retz and his accomplices into custody. Jean Labbé, the sergeant, was a man worthy of the master he served. Though warned that resistance would likely be encountered at the chateau, he selected a posse of twenty chosen men and marched to the castle gate, calling lustily upon the sire de Retz to surrender. "'Who calls?' demanded the marshal from behind the portcullis. Labbé replied the sergeant, drawing his sword. The marshal turned pale, crossed himself, and ordered the drawbridge lowered, saying, It is impossible to resist fight. Years before an astrologer had warned him, he would one day fall into the hands of an abbe. 
Until the moment the sergeant demanded his surrender, the marshal had supposed the prophecy meant he would one day become a monk. Accompanied by two of his retainers, who had been inseparable companions, Henriet and Pontou, by name, the marshal crossed the drawbridge and handed his sword to Jean Lebet. Closely guarded by the sergeant's posse, the accused men made their way to Nantes, where Pierre de l'Hospital waited to dispense stern and even-handed justice. It was well for the sire de Retz that Labbé had brought his score of dauntless peace officers with him. When word passed among the villagers that redoubted Gilles de Laval was riding toward Nantes, surrounded by a bodyguard of agents of arms, peasants left their fields, women their kitchens, and laborers dropped their tools to throng the streets. Way! cried Jean Labbé. Give way to the servants of my lord bishop! A sullen murmur from the crowd answered him. Suddenly a woman's shrill scream rent the noonday calm. My child! she shrieked. A curse of God restore my child! Then a wild wrathful howl broke from the crowd, rang along the Nantes road, and died away only when the great gates of the Chateau de Buffet clanged shut behind the prisoner. The whole population of Nantes was in a turmoil. It was whispered the investigation would be a farce. The Duke would surely screen his kinsmen. The sire de Retz would be forced to surrender some more of his land, perhaps. After that, he would be released. Justice weighed heavily only on the poor. Sure enough, an attempt was made to shield the accused. Jean de Toucheron, whose office it was to collect evidence against the prisoners, was approached by the Duke and told that it would be pleasing to the great nobleman if the evidence was so colored as to render the charge on which de Retz would be tried less than capital. But the duke reckoned without the bishop of Nantes and Pierre de l'Hospital, grand seneschal of Brittany. These fearless exponents of justice summoned de Tocheronde before them. Monsieur, said de l'Hospital, fixing his penetrating black eyes on the lawyer, your duty lies plain before you. See to it that it be well performed. The bishop fingered the jeweled cross suspended from his neck by its golden chain. You have taken an oath to do equal justice to a rich and poor, monsieur, he reminded de Torcheron. Excommunication may be the penalty for oath-breaking. Criminal procedure, then in vogue in France, differed from that of England, in that the accused was not permitted to confront his accusers face to face at the trial. Evidence for the prosecution was taken before a commissioner, especially nominated for that purpose, then reduced to writing. The transcript of this testimony was then transmitted to the trial justice who summoned the accused before him, read a brief summary of the offense of which he was charged, and proceeded to examine him. No opportunity was afforded the prisoner for cross-examination of the prosecution's witnesses, nor was he informed of the nature of their testimony. It remained for the judge to piece together the stories of the prosecution and defense, deciding for himself whether the prisoner had adequately refuted the testimony of his accusers. Such a thing as trial by jury was undreamed of anywhere outside of England. Manifestly unfair as this procedure was in many respects, it had one advantage lacked by the common law system. The accused was unable to invent false testimony with which to meet unexpected statements made by the prosecution's witnesses. The investigation opened on the morning of September 18, 1440. The witnesses were introduced into the Hall of Justice singly, or in groups if they were relations. On entering the room, each witness knelt before the commissioner, kissed the crucifix, and swore with his hand on the Gospels that he would speak the truth and nothing but the truth. 
After this, he related all the facts in his knowledge pertaining to the case without being either interrogated or interrupted. The first to present herself was Barine Lusod, living at La Roche-Bernard. Tears streaming down her face, she related how two years before, in the month of September, the sire de Retz, with all his retinue, passed through La Roche-Bernard. She lived opposite the house where the nobleman stomped. Her child, a lad of ten, the finest in the village, had attracted the attention of de Retz as he stood at a window leaning on his squire's shoulder. Pontu, de Retz's servant, spoke to the boy, asking him what he intended to be when he grew up. A soldier, the lad replied. Very well, Pontu answered. Come with me and I will give you a sword. The child entered the house with Pontu for the coveted weapon and was never seen again. Deposition followed deposition, always to the same effect. Parents had left their houses, sometimes only for a few moments. When they returned, their children were gone. An old beggar woman, once subsisting on the peasants' alms, had been observed going toward the castle at evening many times, accompanied by children. She invariably returned alone. In a few months, from some unknown source, she had amassed a competence, moved from the neighborhood, and was seen no more. Thirty children had disappeared from a single village within a year, and the victims were always boys. No girl child had been molested. So frequent had the kidnappings become that parents dared not send children to tend sheep or goats or carry food to their fathers or brothers working in the fields. When Jean Labay went to the chateau to arrest Aretz, Barine Lussard, half-crazed with grief at the loss of her child, had accompanied him. Entering a stable while the sergeant's guard was there to protect her, she had found a heap of ashes and powder, which gave off a sickly and peculiar smell. At the bottom of a trough she found a child's shirt half-burned, the remaining portion caked with dried blood. After several days spent in taking similar testimony, the prosecution announced its case complete, and court was opened to hear what defense Gilles de Laval, Sire de Retz, and Marshal of France had to offer to the dastardly crimes charged against him. The marshal entered the courtroom dressed in doublé and hose of white satin, thickly sewn with seed pearls. About his neck hung several golden collars, emblems of his orders of knighthood. On his breast, a half-score military decorations blazed, for the sire de Retz had been a mighty warrior of France before he took up his abode in the country and became the object of terrible suspicions. On a dozen hotly contested fields, he had led the French forces to victory and had engaged in the siege of Orleans with Jeanne d'Arc. Entering the castle's moat with her and being severely wounded by an English pikeman, upon his head was a cap of ermine, the royal fur which none but the king and a few of his most valuable nobles were privileged to wear. No one at first glance would have thought the sire de Retz capable of such horrid crimes as those of which he stood accused. His face was somewhat pale and wore, in repose, an expression of gentle melancholy. But his beard was his outstanding characteristic. In sharp contrast to his hair and mustache, which were light, almost blonde, it was jet black. Yet in certain lights it assumed a blue hue. It was this peculiarity which earned for the sire de Retz the surname of Bluebeard, a name that has attached to him in popular romance since the Middle Ages, though his story has undergone a strange change, remaining in general memory only as the ghastly fairy tale which frightens children today. Mild and gentle as de Retz's face appeared at first glance, however, a closer inspection revealed an innate cruelty, 
In his eyes, there always smoldered a lurking, sinister expression, which now and again glowed like charcoal embers when blown upon by the fire bellows. At such times he ground his teeth, like a wild beast about to leap upon its prey, and his lips became so contracted they showed pale and bloodless against his beard. Then it was his beard appeared to bristle and show its blue shade more than ever, and his face paled to a corpse gray. After a few moments his features became serene again. A sweet smile reposed on the lips which had a moment before been set in a diabolical snarl, and his expression relapsed into a vague and tender melancholy. Messieurs, said the marshal, lifting his furred cap and saluting his judges with formal politeness, pray expedite my matter as quickly as possible. I would that my unfortunate case be soon disposed of, for I am peculiarly anxious to consecrate myself to God's service. He has pardoned my sins, and I would even enter a monastery and become a monk. Fear not, I shall richly endow several of the churches of Nantes, and shall distribute the greater portion of my goods among the poor, the better to secure the salvation of my soul. Had this been Spain, where religious fervor swayed even the actions of courts of justice, the sire de Retz's plea might easily have operated to discontinue the prosecution. But the Frenchman is as practical in things spiritual as in things temporal. Monseigneur, gravely replied Pierre de l'Hospital, it is ever well to think of the salvation of one's soul, but you will please remember that we are now concerned with the salvation of your body. A look of impatience flitted across the face of Gilles de Retz. I have confessed to the Father Superior of the Carmelites, he answered. Through his absolution I have been able to communicate. I am therefore guiltless and purified. Pierre de l'Hospital drummed noiselessly on the polished table before him with his fingertips. True servant of the church though he was, this talk of confession and purification pleased him not at all. Today he was sitting in the secular capacity of judge. The body of a man accused of killing the bodies of helpless children was on trial before him. Let the superior of the Carmelites supervise the welfare of the prisoner's soul. He, Pierre L'Hospital, would perform the earthly office. Men's justice is not in common with that of God, he said finally. Nor though you were forty times confessed and shriven, can I tell you what your sentence will be until I've heard the evidence in your case. Be ready then to make your defense and listen carefully to the charges brought against you. He nodded to the court's clerk, who rose and unrolled a parchment. Hear ye, Gilles de Lavaux, sire de Retz, consulaire to Majesty, the King and Marshal of France, read the priest, forasmuch as it has come to our ears that you have seized and caused to be seized the bodies of several little children of the Diocese of Nantes, not only ten or twenty, but thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, one hundred, two hundred, and more and have murdered them with inhuman tortures, afterwards burning their bodies to ashes. We do charge and adjure your true answer to make to these charges, and say whether ye be guilty or not guilty of these abominable doings. The grave eyes of Pierre de l'Hospital never left the prisoner's face while the indictment was being read. What justification can you make? he asked. Take an oath in the Holy Gospels to declare the truth. Not I, exclaimed the marshal haughtily. The witnesses are bound to declare their testimony on oath, but I, the accused, need take no oath. I will make no answer. 
Pierre de l'Hospital rose from his chair, gathering his scarlet robes of office about him. He was a small man, wiry and quick as a terrier, and with something of the terrier's nervous activity in his movements. His great head, with its high, white brow, seemed to weigh down his diminutive body. His eyes, large and black, have been likened to the pools of new ink, and truly, like the ink, they recorded everything. These eyes he fixed on Durette's in an unwinking stare. "'Do you refuse to plead?' he asked in a voice of ominous calm. "'I do!' thundered the marshal, the death-like pallor which told of his ungovernable temper beginning to spread over his face. "'I'm Marshal of France. I'm—' Pierre de l'Hospital stretched out a scarlet-clad arm and pointed to a baize curtain hanging near the judge's bench. The portiere swung back, revealing an alcove, recessed from the main chamber. In it was a long, low bench of dark wood, worn smooth and polished by much use. At either end were curious rope-and-ring attachments, and above it was a windlass over which the ropes wound. Standing beside the instrument were two men in close-fitting tights of brown stuff, uncouth headgear, masking their faces. Through the eye holes in their masks they watched Pierre de l'Hospital expectantly. Gilles de Retz glanced once through the uncurtained doorway and cast a look of murderous hate at his judge. But a pallor more sallow than that of rage overspread his face, for the low wooden bench in the alcove was the rack, and the masked men beside it were the official torturers of the court. Gilles de Retz, who delighted in the sight of suffering children and joyed in the sound of their death moans, had no stomach for the rack. "'I will answer,' he said, attempting to compose his features. "'Torture me not, good Monsieur de l'Hospital, I implore you. "'As to the charges, I say nothing. "'They are simply false and calumnious.' "'Indeed,' answered his judge. "'And am I to believe that all the people who complain of having lost their children lied under oath?' "'Undoubtedly,' replied the marshal, his equanimity restored now that the curtain had been again drawn before the rack. "'What am I to know of their brats? Am I their keeper?' Gain me the same answer, remarked Pierre de l'Hospital. However, as you solemnly deny these charges, we must question Henriet and Pontou. Henriet? Pontou? cried the marshal, trembling. Surely they accuse me of nothing? Not as yet. They have not been questioned, but they are about to be brought into court, and I do not think they will lie in the face of justice. I demand that my servants be brought not forward as witnesses against their master stormed the marshal, his brow wrinkling and his beard bristling blue upon his chin. A master is above the gossiping tales of his servants. Do you think, monsieur, your servants will accuse you? I demand that I, a marshal of France, a baron of the duchy, should be sheltered from the slanders of small folk whom I disown as my servants if they are untrue to me. Justice knows no small folk and no great. We shall see what Henriet and Pontou have to say. Pierre de l'Hôpital nodded meaningly toward the curtain concealing the rack. There are means of gleaning this truth. At a sign from the judge, guards led the sire de Retz back to his prison. In the corridor outside the courtroom, the marshal passed Henriet and Pontou, escorted by Agent d'Armes. Henriet averted his eyes, but Pontou burst into tears at the sight of his master. De Retz held out his hand, which Pontou kissed affectionately. "'Remember I'll have done for you, my children,' said the marshal, "'and be good and faithful servants.' 
Again, Pontu covered his hands with kisses, but Aurier shank from him with a shudder. In silence, the two culprits were conducted to the bar of the court. Pierre de l'Hospital looked sharply from one to the other, then signed to the clerk to read the indictment which charged them as accomplices of the Sire de Retz. Never for an instant did the eyes of the president of the court leave the face of Henriet, while the clerk droned out the charge. Henriet was a sharp contrast to Pontu. Pontu's bullet head, short, thick neck, and undershot jaw, betokened a nature innately cruel and bestial. Nothing but torture, carried past the limit of human endurance, would wring the truth from him. Henriet, on the other hand, was as fragile and as prettily made as a girl, slender and tall, with tapering white fingers and blonde hair falling in loose curls about his ears. He looked anything but the criminal he was accused of being. His blue eyes, though set too close together, were mild and timid in expression, and the slope of his beardless chin bespoke a nature rather weak than wicked. "'What say ye, or wretched men, guilty or not guilty?' asked Pierre de l'Hospital, still gazing fixedly at Henriet. "'Alas, mon Dieu!' exclaimed Henriet. "'I am even as you say. I shall tell all, for I have another master besides my poor master of Retz, and I shall soon be with the Heavenly One.' He would have continued had not a shout from Pontu interrupted him. "'Messieurs les juges!' he cried. "'My poor friend is tossing the head!' He is mad. All he says is but the raving of a lunatic. Ah, Pontu, out of thine own mouth hast thou convicted thyself, returned Pierre de l'Hospital. For hadst thou not been concerned in deviltry, thou wouldst not have feared thy friend's ravings. Proceed, he nodded to Aurier, and see to it that thou speakst but the truth. But Henriet seemed to have lost the power of speech. Only incoherent murmurings came from his nervously working lips. At last he managed to gasp. Monsieur le juge, I cannot speak to the abominable words I have to utter while that is in my sight. He pointed a trembling finger to the great crucifix suspended above the judge's bench. Led by Pierre de l'Hospital, the court rose and stood with bared heads, while amid a death-like silence, the image of the Lord was veiled in black bunting. Condensed, Henriet's testimony was as follows. On graduating from the University of Angus, he had taken the situation of reader in the household of Sire de Retz. From the first, the marshal had taken a liking to him, and soon made him chamberlain and confidant. When he had been in the household about six months, the marshal decided to deed the castle Chantons to the Duke of Brittany. The night preceding the morning, the duke took possession. The marshal summoned Henriet, Pontu, and one petit robin to his bedchamber. When all were assembled, de Retz compelled Henriet to kneel on the bare floor and take a solemn and horrible oath never to reveal what was about to be told him. The oath taken, the sire de Retz told them he was expecting the duke's officers to take over the chateau the following day, and before that happened there were certain matters which had to be disposed of. Pontu and Robin grinned knowingly at this, but Henriet was in the dark until the other two servants procured ropes and poles tipped with hooks. They then led the way to an old disused well. Giving Henriet a torch and one of the grappling hooks, they lowered him into the well with instructions to pass up all he found there. 
What was his horror to find the hole filled with bodies of children long dead? Almost fainting from fright and horror, he had nevertheless proceeded with the task assigned him. And before daybreak, the well was emptied and the little bodies, all of them terribly mutilated, burned to ashes in a great bonfire the other two servitors built. He had counted 36 heads in the well, but more bodies than heads. Following this horrifying experience, life went on as usual within the marshal's household for several months. De Retz was deeply religious, and attended daily masses in his private chapel, accompanied by his entire suite. But one day, just at dusk, the marshal summoned Henriet to a room in a remote tower where a great fire was blazing on the hearth. "'Fetch me a child,' his master ordered curtly. Not daring to ask an explanation, Henriet went outside the castle, seized a little boy he found in a nearby road, and carried him to his lord. "'Kill it!' the sire de Retz bade him. "'Kill it?' the young secretary stammered. "'How?' "'Dolt!' de Retz stamped his foot impatiently, at the same time drawing back his lips like a snarling beast. "'Slit its throat!' Henriet carried out the fiendish order while the marshal stood by and gloated at the sight of the little one's death agonies. Then began a life of crime unspeakable for Henriet. Child after child he bore to his master, always with the same fatal result. Sometimes de Retz himself inflicted the death stroke. More often he stood by, watching his servants performing the deed. Lucky was the child whose life ended with one quick blow from knife or axe. Torture. Slow and horrible was the lot of the great majority of the little victims. When one of these massacres was finished and the poor infant finally dead, the marshal was invariably filled with remorse for the deed. He would toss, weeping and praying on the bed, or recite fervent litanies on his knees, while his servants washed up the floor and incinerated the little victims in the great fireplace. An insupportable odor filled the room where these slaughters invariably took place, but the marshal inhaled it with keenest delight. Henriet acknowledged he had seen no less than forty children done to death in this manner, and so good a description was he able to give of several that it was possible to identify them as children whose parents had testified to their loss. Relating the case of two lads named Hamelin, babes of three and four years, respectively. He told how the older boy waited his turn, weeping and praying while his little brother was slowly tortured to death. "'But this is incredible!' exclaimed Pierre de l'Hospital, whose eyes dilated at the horrors of Henriet's revelations. "'Only some of the Caesars of Rome have been charged with such detestable crimes.' "'Monsieur le Juge,' Henriet replied, it was the acts of these Caesars my master desired to emulate. I used to read him the chronicles of Soronius and Tacitus. He never tired hearing them, but ever urged me to read more and more. How many children do you estimate the sire de Retz and his servants killed? The reckoning is long. I, from my own wretched part, confess to killing twelve with my own hand at my master's orders. And I have brought him more than three score. I know this devil's business has long gone on before I entered his service. Have you more to declare? 
asked the president of the court, signing himself with the cross. Nay, mon juge, save to ask Pontou, my friend, to corroborate what I have said. Pontou, said Pierre de l'Hospital, turning his burning eyes on the other culprit. I command you in the name of God and of justice to declare all that you know. The deep grave lines about the older servant's mouth lengthened as his facial muscles tightened, but he kept silence. For those who will not speak, there is the rack, the judge reminded him, signing to the torturers to make ready. But Pontou, heartless murderer though he was, had still the virtue of loyalty to the hand that fed him. Not until the executioners had forced him on the rack, and the cold iron of the jeeves bit into his wrists and ankles did he commence his confession. Then as the head torturer laid his hand to the windlass which would tighten the ropes, dislocating the prisoner's knee and elbow joints, Pontou's confession began. If he had maintained a stubborn silence in the face of torture, his volubility was great enough now. All that Henriet had told and more, he related, heaping description of crime after revolting crime before the court, till Pierre de l'Hospital would hear no more. Enough! exclaimed the judge, cutting short the prisoner's abhorrent tale. Were a thousand men on trial before us, thou hast told enough to convict them all. Next day, Gilles de Laval stood once more before his judges. What answer make you to the charges? asked Pierre de l'Hospital. I am Chamberlain and Marshal to his venerated majesty, the King France, began the prisoner arrogantly. This is no affair of the King of France, thundered the judge, incensed at the criminal's effrontery. Confess, or by a lady in St. Denis, you go to the rack. Cowed, his iron nerve broke by the threat of torture, Gilles de Laval told such a story as no court before or since ever listened to. Shortly before his voluntary retirement from the royal court, he had chanced upon a Latin book detailing the lives of the Caesars, tales of revolting cruelty, which would have sickened an ordinary man, thrilled him with the greatest pleasure. He resolved to imitate or surpass these monsters of antiquity. That very night, he carried his resolve into execution by running his sword through a luckless waif he came upon in the streets of Paris. But Paris was a great city, under the ever-watchful eye of the king's officers. His plans could not be carried out there in safety. So as soon as he could wind up his affairs, he renounced his promising career as a courtier and submerged himself at his principal country seat. From the day he settled at Marsh School, his depredations on the childhood of the Diocese of Nantes began. In less than seven years he had committed personally or by agent more than 800 child murders. The confession finished, Gilles de Laval looked expectantly at his judges. He was a very great, a very powerful nobleman. Yet the president of the court had shown himself fearless and impartial throughout the trial. Would they order his lands confiscated? Would they dare imprison him, grand seigneur and favorite of the king though he was? Pierre de l'Hospital, president of the court, glanced from left to right where his associate justices sat. Each way he looked, his colleagues met his eyes steadily and nodded briefly, significantly. Pierre de l'Hospital looked down upon the prisoner, as though some loathsome reptile were coiled upon the pavement before him. "'Amort,' he said shortly, 
and at the words a bell high up in the tower of the Hall of Justices began to toll. Gilles de Laval fell back a pace, his jaw relaxing as he looked upon the stern-faced man who had pronounced the sentence. Amort to death! Gilles de Laval, sire de Retz, chamberlain and counselor to the king, cousin of John V. Duke of Brittany, and marshal of France, had been sentenced to die like a common felon. Amort, he muttered wonderingly, stunned by the two-word sentence. To hang in shame between two criminals. Our lord so died, dear master, whispered Henriet, who pale and tearful had stood to receive his sentence. The sire de Retz turned on him with an animal snarl. His lips went back from his teeth and his beard showed blue in the half-light streaming through the courtroom windows. You! He began raising his clenched fists over his trembling servant. You traitor, you! Two agents d'armes laid hands on him and led him from the justice hall. Every effort was made to stay execution. Jean V. Duke of Brittany was not pleased that his cousin should die upon the gallows. Gold, lands, all the mighty fortune of the mighty Sire de Retz were offered the Bishop of Nantes if only he would consent to have the sentence commuted. Churches would be endowed. Countless masses should be said for the souls of the worthy poor. Splendid abbeys should be built. Next morning, a procession of priests, monks, and civil guards wound its way through the Nantes to the meadow of Bies on the further side of the river Loire. Three men, hands bound to sides, iron clanking at their ankles, marched near its head. The procession halted near a line of poplar trees where three gibbets, the center one somewhat higher than its neighbors, had been erected. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication, chanted the choir. The tallest of the three prisoners, elegantly dressed in white satin, mounted the rickety stepladder standing beneath the center gallows. A masked executioner adjusted the noose about his neck, being careful not to disturb his pointed blue-black beard on the creamy lace ruffles at his throat. The other two condemned knelt in their chains beneath their respective gibbets. "'Be a brave soldier of our lord, dear master,' they called. A ruffle of drums, a swelling anew of the de profundus from the choir of monks. The tall stool was struck from under him, and the body of Gilles de Laval swayed grotesquely in midair above the fire of brushwood and pitch the executioner lighted under it. From the crowd came six veiled women and six barefooted Carmelite friars carrying an ornate coffin. The body of Gilles de Retz was cut down, scarcely scorched, and carried toward the Carmelite Church of Our Lady. Two more high stools crashed to earth, two more bodies dangled at rope's ends, two more fires roared beneath the gallows. But no coffin was brought forward for Henriet and Pontou. Their bodies crisped to ashes, borne away by the autumn breezes among the poplars of the Loire and the meadow of B.S., while in the Carmelite Church of Our Lady, a mighty choir of monks chanted the responses of a solemn high mass of requiem above the remains of Gilles de Laval, Sire de Retz, Chamberlain and Courtier to the King, Marshal of France, 
and Bluebeard, the greatest criminal ever tried before a court of justice. Note, from the peculiarities of his case, as related by his servants and himself, there can be no doubt that Gilles de Laval, like the famous Jack the Ripper of London, was a victim of that form of insanity known to modern psychiatrists as algolognia. C.A.A. Brill, Psychoanalysis, Wharton and Steele, Medical Jurisprudence, Church and Peterson, Nervous Diseases and Insanity. But his insanity was not such as would entitle him to escape legal execution, either under the common or civil law, since by his own confession he knew the unlawfulness of his acts, and was clearly able to distinguish between right and wrong, as his fits of remorse showed. See Clark or any standard textbook on criminal law. See Barry Quinn. This is the first of a series of articles written for Weird Tales by Seabury Quinn. The second will appear in the November issue. End of section one. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know... Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. <laughs>